I'm going to start sort of awkwardly this morning. That's all right. Um, because pastors, in all fairness, get a bad rap. Uh, there are many people throughout the world and probably pretty close to home who perceive preachers to be sort of, shall we say, slimy salesmen. Where they kind of manipulate and um, bully and uh, cajole and um, pressure people to believe. And so I just want to put that out there and apologize for um, if that's happened to you when the preacher's been up here before. Because you really can't coerce someone into faith. There is no way, really, to make somebody against their will somehow submit to Jesus. Now that's certainly true for preachers. It's also true for you if you have a child or if you have a friend or if you have a parent or a cousin that you want somehow desperately to have them have the hope of trusting in Jesus. It's so tempting to kind of wrestle them to the ground, put their arm behind them and um, put the pressure on. But the reality, reality is from the beginning... Jesus has never done that to people. There is always an invitation that you can accept or you can refuse. And that's actually what we see in our text this morning. That no matter how you perceive the authority and the goodness of Jesus, it's still possible to reject it. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 32. And in Matthew 9, 32, we see, um, we see that when people really get who Jesus is, they, they don't always come around. So it reads this way. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to Jesus. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of the demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So here, among other things, we'll see very clearly that just because Jesus is full of authority and goodness, it doesn't mean that everyone will respond to him with faith. In verse 32, 
says, as they were going away, this is a, this is a reference, I think, to the, the company that was with the blind men in the preceding verses. They were going away, and then it's almost like there was this uh, turnstile, a revolving door. So um, Some other people came in and brought a demon-oppressed man in who was mute. And so, <laughs> I would love for you to notice what's not here. And I will say that if it was your job to be up here talking and talking about all the stuff that's in here, you'd notice what's not there. Because there isn't much in here, is there? Look at that. It says, as they were going away, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Matthew doesn't tell us how the people knew this man had a demon when it looked like he had a medical problem. Now, I don't know. I don't know how to get around that. I don't know what to say to explain that. It's just not here. So I don't have anything to say about that. But I want you to notice that. The other thing Matthew doesn't tell us, he, he doesn't tell us how Jesus performs this miracle. You, uh, you read this and you feel like you blinked and you missed it because you did. Jesus just says, and when the man was healed, he spoke. I mean, previously we've seen all kinds of stuff go on, right? I mean, Jesus touched a leper. Nobody touches a leper. Jesus did. Jesus put his hands on the eyes of the blind men and they could see. Jesus walked through a crowd and a woman grabbed the corner of his uh, robe and she was healed. Jesus from a distance sort of lobbed this uh, healing to uh, a centurion's child. But here, here we got nothing. Which gives me the indication that for Jesus to exercise his authority over this demon or this evil spirit, it was effortless. Completely effortless. So much so, it's not even worth mentioning. Probably is worth saying a little bit, though, about Demons. Demons are sometimes known as unclean spirits. If you're reading through your Bible, they're unclean spirits. They're uh, associated like this one with uh, spiritually, um, spiritually generated afflictions. Sometimes you see demons around the worship of idols or false gods. In fact, in a lot of places, even in the Bible, idol worship and sacrifices are made to appease these local gods or demons so that the spiritual powers will treat individuals and families and communities favorably. But really, beyond that, there's not much in the Bible about demons. We don't know where they come from. 
And so I say that because much of what is written about demons that you might pick up off a bookshelf or uh, find online is speculation. And I wouldn't probably trust it. So be careful. But for our purposes this morning, demons are real, personal, dark spirits who cause uh, people to serve them through fear, deception, and oppression. In this, in this particular case, the demon-oppressed man was unable to speak or to communicate. So you have this spiritual oppression that is having physical results. And without anything, Jesus releases this man. And in some respect, you wonder, how could it have been so easy? And it's important, I think, for you to also notice that it was easy because Jesus is unequaled. There, I think there is a temptation to say uh, there's a yin and a yang, a good and a bad. They're somehow equal. That is not a Christian idea. There is Jesus, who is the Creator God, and there is everything else, including demons. And for, for Jesus to just expel this demon without effort should not surprise us. Because it points us to uh, that final day when Jesus will judge all of the spiritual powers as well as all of humanity and it will be effortless then too. 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the resurrection, reminds us of this. It says, then comes the end. It's pointing to the end again. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay, whenever you read, and you do quite often, rule, authority, and power, that is um, sort of a euphemism for these uh, demonic uh, spirits. So after Jesus destroys them, it says, he must reign until he's put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so Jesus effortlessly dismisses this spirit. But it is at the cross, of course, where he destroys that final enemy, death. So just one more word, don't underestimate demons just because you can't see them, but don't overestimate them either because part of their deception is for you uh, to think that they're stronger and better than they are. And so, well, I've said a lot about not very much, haven't I? Jesus didn't do anything. I mean, uh, this man didn't say anything. He couldn't. Jesus didn't. Perform magic, he just left and the guy could talk, just like that. The other thing, though, I want to point out here is that this man, this poor fellow, is the last in a pretty long line that we have of people who have come to Jesus. 
Just a quick overview of the book of Matthew. Jesus is introduced in the first four chapters. Then we have uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus describes and talks about the kingdom of heaven. And when that is finished then, in chapters 8 and chapter 9, there is this parade of the poor in spirit. There is, you might say, this march of those who are meek. And this parade of the poor in spirit points us in two separate directions. Most clearly, it points us to the authority of Jesus because that really is where the sermon left off. In chapter 7, verse 29, it says, when Jesus finished this teaching, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And so the thing they noticed about what Jesus said was his authority. And the other thing that I would say now that we see him heal this leper and this demon-possessed person, this blind person, this woman who's bleeding, we see all of this, it points us to the authority of Jesus' actions. It isn't just that he talks with authority, he acts with authority. And the parade tells us that. But the parade also points us to who is included in the kingdom of heaven. Because in the sermon, Jesus taught about the blessing of being poor in spirit or mourning or meek or persecuted or merciful or pure in heart. And what we have here is a parade of people who are like that. So I just want to do a quick review. If you have your Bible, uh, look back to chapter 8. Verse 1, because I want you to see this parade. That's what parades are for, right? For, for us to stand and look. I'm just reminded of, of all, all, several movies where there's a parade and part of, the, part of the, the, the parade, function of the parade in the movie is for the, the actors in the movie to go in and out and maybe get lost in the parade and then sneak out the other side. This is that kind of parade. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we, we see, first of all, the, the, you might say the marshal of the parade, this leper, the last person you would expect to be first, the leper. Then we see this Roman soldier, the centurion, asking Jesus to heal uh, his child. And then goes on in verse 14, uh, he goes into the house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. This, too, is a little bit like the, the healing that we see with this uh, demon-possessed man. It doesn't tell us how it happened. But then in chapter 8, 18 through 22, there are a few people who decide to step out of the parade. They say, just a minute, can we stop the parade? Put it on pause. I'll come back and take my spot later. And Jesus said, that's not how parades work. Then in chapter 8, verse 23, the next people in the parade are fishermen. We know them as disciples. And there's a storm on the sea, and they come shaking to Jesus, saying, help us, we're about to drown. After that, there are two demon-possessed men who are so violent, no one can pass through that uh, area, and they, they sleep in the graves with the bones. 
They're followed in chapter 9 by a paralyzed man that's uh, brought by his friends and uh, they tear the roof apart and they lower this paralyzed man down to see Jesus. And then, I, I, I love this, in chapter 9, verse 9, Matthew, the author of this um, gospel, places himself in the parade. So you've got these these untouchables. You've got these broken people. And Matthew says, count me among them. And then after that, you have tax collectors and sinners, which is such a surprise that people have to ask Jesus, what are you doing with the people who are like this? Then a little bit later in verse 18, chapter 9, you have a, a bleeding woman who comes to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and you have a ruler asking Jesus to raise a dead daughter. And then there are two blind men who follow Jesus into the house and he heals them. And now bringing up the rear of this parade, you have this mute man who is oppressed by a demon whose friends bring him to Jesus. And I wanted to point out this parade because it's not the kind of parade that you might like to be part of. It's not the kind of people, I mean, I want to ask the question, where are the people I want to hang out with here? Guess what? They're not there. The people here are broken. And what do they offer Jesus? Nothing but their brokenness. What do they have? Nothing. This is the parade of the poor in spirit. Think about it. If you're Jesus, is this the kind of people you'd start with? I mean, if you're going to start a movement that's going to grow and then ultimately overthrow the Roman Empire, would you start this way? I wouldn't. I mean, where are the cool people? This is the island of misfit toys, really. And yet, it's precisely who Jesus starts his ministry with. The thing that's attractive to them, or excuse me, the thing that's attractive to Jesus about them is their weakness, their sickness, their spiritual oppression, it's these things that bring them to Jesus and it's these things over which he exercises his spiritual authority. Now why do I point that out? Because I can conceive of church-going folks thinking, "Ooh, I'm glad I don't have those problems. Let him not like them. Therein lies the problem, doesn't it? Because the kingdom people are poor in spirit. Kingdom people know they don't come offering Jesus their coolness or their wealth or their abilities. 
they come broken for Jesus to heal them. And so these are the people that Jesus calls. And the parade invites the question, will you join them? Will you put yourself in this unfit parade along with Matthew? See, Matthew gets it. You've got to join the parade if you're going to follow Jesus. Because it's the parade of the poor in spirit. And this final person in the parade helps us to see that. Well, that is the question. Will you join the parade? But I have to say, not everybody will. Look at verses 33 and 34. Not everybody joins the parade. Uh, it says the crowds marveled. The crowds marveled. So they said, this is quite a parade. Look at that. Look at all the flowers on that float. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. And when Jesus taught at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the people were astonished. Now it says they marvel as they watch this parade. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. So why do people marvel? They marvel because they've never seen stuff like this before. Why do people watch dunk contests? Because it's amazing. They've never seen people who can do those sorts of things. Why do people share videos on social media? Some of you, some of you know of my hatred for squirrels. Okay. And I've had a couple of you, who shall remain nameless, forward me videos of a squirrel obstacle course, as though simply just to torture me. And, of course, it came with, didn't it? It came with something that said, we've never seen anything like this in West Lynn. That's why people forward videos, right? We've never seen anything like this. This is crazy. It's because they haven't been in my yard. I see squirrel stuff like that all the time. But that's what they're saying. This is marvelous. We've never seen anything like Jesus before. We've never heard teaching like his. We've never seen authority in action like his. And so they marvel. Now they marvel, but I also want you to notice, if you look carefully at what's not there again, you'll notice there's no faith there. They say, oh, wow, that's cool. But they don't believe. You see it in all the prey, don't you? You see it in the leper, you see it in the blind man, you see it in the woman, you see it everywhere. The centurion, they believed. And Jesus recognizes, these people are trusting me. But here you have a crowd that marvels with no faith. They, they remain apparently undecided they're in this sort of squishy middle zone between faith and rejection 
which you want to be fairly familiar with because the world around us has a lot of this. There are a few people maybe who are hostile to Christians. There are a few people who believe, but this squishy middle is just that. According to the Barna Research Group, non-practicing Christians have grown from 35% of the population to 43% of the population in the last 20 years. During that same time, the number of practicing Christians or the percentage of practicing Christians has declined from 45% to 25%. Non-Christians or agnostics have increased from 20% to 32%. Which, those statistics don't tell you anything except to say that this squishy middle, the people who can marvel and still yawn at Jesus is increasing. That's what appears the crowd is doing. Well, the crowd marvels, but it tells us then that the Pharisees mutter. Look at what it says. He does, he casts out demons by the prince of the demons. They mutter, something else is going on here. It really can't be as good as it looks. They mutter, how is he going to cast out a demon he can't talk to? They mutter, the prince of the demons is in charge of the demons, so that must be him. In other words, they're not in the squishy middle. They're certainly not people of faith, are they? They are actively rejecting Jesus. We're going to revisit their objection and their rejection again when we get to chapter 12 because they, they, they voice it again in a little more extended fashion. But if the crowd is undecided, the Pharisees have decided and they want no part of Jesus. But I say that and I, w- I want to stop for a moment. And I want you to notice that the Pharisees are the people with the most biblical information. They are the ones who have the most religious experience. And they are the people who fail to believe in Jesus. It is possible that the people with the best evangelical pedigree might miss the Messiah. It's possible to sit in church your entire life and never submit yourself to Jesus. I say that because these Pharisees... They knew what they wanted Jesus to do. They had, this, they, they had this picture of what Jesus should do for them and for the nation. He should overthrow Rome. And so they were so busy looking for Jesus to do their thing that they missed Jesus doing His thing. 
And I point that out because I don't want that to happen to you. I hope that I regularly appeal to you to be humble. And part of my regular appeal to humility is for each of us to recognize that we may have more in common with the Pharisees than we do with the crowd. So don't be so sure that you have the religious answer that you are unwilling to examine your own soul. Because there's a crowd who marvels and there are Pharisees who mutter. And there's a parade of poor in spirit people who have faith. Well, then we have a summary statement here of the parade and what happens subsequently. It says in verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I want you to see here what I haven't really seen until recently. That Jesus teaches and he proclaims the gospel and he heals. And when I say that, he teaches, he proclaims, and he heals, what do you hear? Do you think to yourself, or do you, is this how you read it? Because this is how I read it. That, that Jesus goes to the synagogue and he sits and he teaches the Torah. And then he gets in his car and he goes somewhere else. And he presents the gospel to people so that they might be saved. And then, in yet a third activity, he plays a doctor on TV and he heals people. And so this text you might read as Jesus being busy doing three independent, separate things. But these are all here together. And I would like to suggest that they're here together because you should see Jesus doing one thing. He is teaching the Torah in the synagogue or he is teaching the old, what we know as the Old Testament. And by teaching the Old Testament, he is pointing people to himself. It's what he did in Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, it tells us that what did Jesus do? He spoke in the, uh, in the law and the prophets concerning himself. He is in the synagogue giving them good news. The Messiah has come. He's preaching the gospel. That's what it means when it says Jesus is teaching the Torah. He is telling God's story that he is setting the world right and rescuing rebellious humanity. Which is more than Jesus merely saving individual souls. You might think of it this way. He is teaching people how they themselves can fit the gospel, and how they can align themselves with the story that God is writing, and how they can then jump in on what God is doing in the world. 
That's how Jesus taught in the synagogue. He taught in the synagogue by giving them good news. That God is restoring individuals and the world. But I would also say then, if you think of these three activities, that one of the ways that Jesus proclaimed the gospel was to free those who were in bondage was to open the ears of those who had them closed. That's what we have in our text today. That he might give sight to the blind. That was our text last week. And so the good news is not merely that somehow Jesus saves your invisible soul, but Jesus can make you whole. That Jesus comes and he makes right what was wrong. I don't want us to somehow chop off part of the good news to say that only the invisible part of you can be helped by Jesus. Because what Jesus is doing in the world, this is that story of God that is telling throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that God is making right what is wrong. And the, the coming of God's kingdom, then in a, you know, in a seed, we'll see later in Matthew, in, in small forms, this kingdom then will someday flourish and all the wrongs will be right. That Jesus is restoring a broken humanity and a broken world to what it should be. That's where this healing every disease and every affliction comes in. So there is a whole picture of the gospel in this verse. Or to say it another way, Jesus then is the hope of the world. Jesus is the way to become fully human. We don't trust Jesus with our, I'm going to say it another way, we don't trust Jesus with our souls in school with our minds and doctors with our bodies and governments with our property. We come to Jesus to be made whole. We don't divide up our lives. And the good news is that for all of our life, for now and forever, Jesus is the Savior. So even with a message of the gospel like that, you'll find that you can stop short of faith at several different points, can't you? You can stop with the crowd and say, wow, we've never seen anything like that. Or you can stop with the Pharisees and say, forget about it. He must be on the side of the demons. That has always been the way that people can respond to the invitation to get in the parade and follow Jesus. You see it here in this text that there are alternate ways besides faith to react to Jesus. In the early Christian preaching, you see it too. In Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul was preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And it says, when they heard the resurrection of the, Jesus, the, resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And it says, so Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. You see it there too, don't you? Some believed. Some said, we need to hear you again. And some, some mocked. 
It's the same response you have here in Matthew chapter 9. And so I simply want to invite you not to be among the mockers, but rather to be among those who believe. Not to be in the squishy middle here somewhere, but to step in like Matthew did in the parade of broken misfits who trust Jesus to make them better. And so you can't make someone believe. You can't force someone to respond to God the way you want them to. But rather, you can simply offer the invitation. What will you do with Jesus? When Jesus speaks with authority and acts with authority and calls the poor in spirit, will you respond to him? Jesus brings the gospel of the kingdom presenting a life that is fully human, redeemed and rebuilt. Will you step in line behind Him? This soul-saving, world-transforming gospel where Jesus heals the broken, touches the sick, casts out the spiritual oppression. Is that for you? Now, If it is, I would invite you to trust Jesus. 